Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Uh, today we'll be talking about grave history, death, race, and gender in Southern Cemetery cemeteries. And here today are the editors, Kami Fletcher and Ashley Towell. Dr. Fletcher is the Associate Professor of American and African American History at Albright University in Pennsylvania. And Dr. Ashley Towell is an Assistant Professor of History and Women and Gender Studies at the University of Southern Maine in Portland. Now, this is an edited collection that looks at issues of race and gender in deathscapes across the southern states. And it takes a very big historic sweep right up until the present day. And for the most part today, we'll be talking about racial divisions in cemeteries under the Jim Crow laws. But perhaps if it'd be really useful for me if we could start maybe by talking a little bit about burial practices in the southern states before the Civil War. Um, presumably there were some species of racial divides. I mean, how did how did it all work? Yeah, so I guess I can uh, get us started with answering uh, that question. <clears throat> I think racial divisions in cemeteries are really, they're as old as the United States itself. Um, this was a practice that settler colonists, they practiced when they came over to what would become the United States. Um, some of the like first legislation that the that's passed in the Virginia colony is actually around like segregating burials and making sure that um, that burials are done not in private either. So they had to be public so that everyone would know like who had died and where they were buried. Um, so race was at the center of burial practices from mm -hmm. the start. Um, and so there was some kind of like legal codification of segregation, but a lot of it was also just common practice that this was just the way it was. Um, so in the South, on plantations, enslavers would set aside separate burial plots for enslaved people, and that's where they would be buried. Um, it was only the you know, the select few enslaved people that might get that place of purported prominence being buried with an enslaver's family to show kind of their like loyalty. And that was seen as a sign of, um, you know, that they had been faithful and loyal and enslavers saw this as being something that was that was um, like a gift to enslaved people to be buried with the family. Um, for free black people, they... Um, actually would establish their own cemeteries as a way of showing kind of their respectability, their ability to care for the dead in a way that they saw fit um, to, to kind of give their community members the burial that they thought that they were entitled to. So you do see free Black people starting their own benevolent societies and mutual aid societies to be able to establish their own black cemeteries to provide for the dead as well. Um, mm -hmm. Because they didn't want them in these segregated plots, kind of relegated in like pauper's fields. Um, they wanted to have a more respectable burial. Um, and Cami, I don't know if you want to talk about kind of how that, that gets dismantled or contested um, in the 20th century. Yeah, no, I was just thinking about when you were starting off um, burial in the South, right? The South is defined by slavery, uh, mm -hmm. plantation slavery, you know, in this country. And so already there's a divide in the living that, um, you know, these enslavers, these white enslavers were very serious in taking with them into the afterlife. Uh, they took this white supremacy with them um, and into the afterlife. Um, what I found 
not just in the 20th century, though, because um, in, in studying Mount Auburn in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, what I found is just like, you know, Ashley was talking about these laws, um, there's a, a really important article uh, by Rodiger talking about these Virginia laws where Black folks can't gather for funerals. Um, and you also, you see some tension there because if you constantly have these kind of back-to-back laws in the 1600s, then his argument, which I think is a very powerful one, says that Black folks keep doing it, right? Mm-hmm. They keep gathering, they keep burying. Um, it, it, so you see this kind of acquiescence of um, the slaveholder, which is this type of activism, right? Um, and that, that's kind of where my work really comes in, um, not just the 20th century, but looking at, um, you know, what is the um, origin of this kind of from slavery to freedom story when you're looking at death and burial and cemetery as the vehicle uh, for activism. And so when I'm um, taking it up, Jim Crow segregation, this legal segregation um, as of the Homer Plessy, the separate but equal United States Supreme Court, 1896, you see Black folks just saying absolutely not. And they are using the NAACP. They are using all types of grassroots, these benevolent societies from the 19th century um, to just not be buried in Potter's Field, to not be Jim Crow, um, you know, to have this very important, um, you know, really to be able to rest in peace, right? This kind of American idea, right? Liberty, pursuit of happiness, and the, you know, my, my burial rights. So... Yeah, you know, really trying to look at what what's going on with this kind of racial border um, mm. that defines the South, even in even in death. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because this this happens on so many different levels. Even I was really struck by um, the discussion of what happens in the cemeteries, even during the Civil War, and the discriminatory practices that extended to the the ladies' memorial associations, glorifying the graves of the rebels soldiers. And deliberately neglecting the Union soldier graves as a, a as being testament to this notion that, um, you know, to the lost cause that that this the fight had been, um, you know, the way in which this fight had been sort of um, undertaken, really sort of like it, it was just continuing. It was this this, this fight was continuing. The war was over, but the fight continued. And I think the cemeteries were such a prime location for that continued tension and conflict. Um, as a segregation played out in those landscapes, in those cemetery landscapes as well, not just the separated ones, but even within the segregated landscapes of the cemetery themselves. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, Ashley, go ahead. No, I was just going to uh, put in a plug for Joy Jaguer's tremendous chapter that looks just at that using um, Cave Hill Cemetery mm-hmm. in Louisville, Kentucky, to show that exact practice of here was, you know, a state that never seceded, that was one of these border states, uh, remained in the Union, and yet the cemetery does become very much a Confederate cemetery. This is a national cemetery that the federal government is funding, is burying Union soldiers, Um, and yet the Confederate sentiments there, they really take root in that cemetery. And so Cave Hill becomes this really interesting microcosm for looking at how Kentucky, after the war ended, did really consider themselves to be 
part of the Confederacy and developed this Confederate identity after the war. And the cemetery was part of that transformation. You can see that in the cemetery. Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. No. Um, in thinking about George's chapter, I wanted to, to provide more context. You know, Ashley and I were um, thinking about putting this volume together, you know, her very important work on national cemeteries in the South. Um, and then what what I was doing, um, we wanted to start the the anthology off with the uh, Confederate monument debate, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that was happening just a few years ago. Um, and mm -hmm. your comments made me think about this, that it's not just... Um, people who are dying and being buried, but this idea of memory, this mm -hmm. idea of memorial, who gets to be remembered, who gets to be forgotten, and just what's going on there. Um, and in part of that, thinking about memory, right, is how does the South identify itself, right? Because there, there's a very strong sentiment of, um, you know, the winter, the winners till the, the victors tell the, the story, right? But in the South, you know, they lost the Civil War. They're able to just tell the story. Um, and even though the white supremacy lost, they're able to still memorialize themselves in some very uh, powerful ways that you were just talking about, the Ladies Memorial Society. Um, you know, these women, um, you know, that they had garnered so much power that in the early 20th century, there was almost a mammy memorial on um at, at, at on the national mall right so a mammy is a jim crow caricature of mm -hmm. a black woman she's dark skinned she's heavy set and she loves massive kids so what mm -hmm. message does that send about the identity of the south um the docility mm -hmm. of, of black women the the caretaking of of the, of the south right to her own detriment right and so these women, their fathers, their husbands, their brothers, their sons died, and they refused to let them not be remembered. But that's that kind of contention um, that this volume asks you to really think about. You know, I am a Southerner. I'm from Arkansas, uh, mm -hmm. and there's a there's a, a a fascination with the South. We have reality TV shows about mm -hmm. a Duck Dynasty and. Um, you know, the, 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 the sayings that we have, and, and there's a charm, right, that, that the South has, but there, but it, it is, you know, almost to the, um, what do I want to say, um, almost to the omission of the brutality that has happened mm -hmm. to folks, and there's one kind of narrative, um, and so we're saying the South has a story to tell, let's mm -hmm. use the cemetery to, to tell the story. Yeah. I think you're right. And thinking about the prominent nature of that that Southern narrative is really interesting thinking as well. So much of the narrative that sits in this book is about these hidden landscapes, about these the stories that these hidden landscapes tell about the communities and the communities and how those communities supported each other to um to honor their homegoing ceremonies. Uh, this is an area I found really very interesting understanding that community. Um, that growth of res community resilience and using these structures, the mutual society structures. Um, can you tell me a bit more about that and how they, they were kind of developing? Sure. Um, I think we have a few chapters that are really good at showing, in particular, the work that women were involved in. I think when we look at 
the Reconstruction period, right after the Civil War, historians have pointed out that there is this flurry of institution building that happens of mutual aid societies, benevolent societies. Um, but a lot of the emphasis has been put on men who were leading these societies. And what I think our book does really well is shows that Black women were really at the forefront of these societies as well. Uh, they had this long history of being caregivers for the dead that they take with them into freedom when they establish these societies. Um, so Lynn Rainville, who does phenomenal work on African-American cemeteries. Uh, her chapter looks at the Daughters of Zion Cemetery in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, and this was an organization that was led by women who created this cemetery for African-Americans in the community, again, to have a place where they could receive a proper burial, where they could have um, a proper funeral and a headstone and a place where people could come and visit them and be proud um, of them. And so this was really kind of a, a focal point for the community and the Daughters of Zion as an organization. They had this really prominent role in the black community in Charlottesville. Um, at one point, they had like their own um, like space where political organization would happen as well. And the community would come together if they needed space for an event. Um, so I think it just shows how central death was to the building of community. And Sherry Williams chapter does that as well. She did some really, really um, impressive just research, just getting into digging into numbers and figuring out, you know, how many women were part of the Zephros, which was kind of the the women's arm of the Mosaic Templars of America, which was a, a big mutual aid society that started um, during Reconstruction. And what was interesting about her chapter, she was looking at Macon County um, Alabama, she found that it wasn't just middle class African American women who were part of these mutual aid societies, but it was lower class women too, who they were willing to use their money to join these societies because they thought that it was a means of uplifting themselves, their families, their communities. So this was an expense that they were willing to take on because they saw that it could be this beneficial thing for their families, and their communities, and kind of ascending into the middle class, perhaps. I know this is slightly off the, the context of the book, but Cami, you do so much work on the, the development of the, the Black funeral directing industry mm -hmm. in the U.S., did these mutual aid societies, what kind of relationship did they have with kind of funeral directing as a business? Was it was it kind of mutually reinforcing? How did it work? You know, um, that that's something that I have been looking into. Um, I was writing an article about Black funeral directors. Um, and what I found in Baltimore is that there are these cooperatives that are happening, mm -hmm. these cooperative clusters of apprenticeship. I teach you, then I teach my family members. There's just or I have the 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 horse and, and carriage for mm. um, the um, the body to the cemetery. You know, I'm I, or I'm the one that does the, the coffin. And I got this question about, um, you know, is there any competitiveness here? Um, you know, surely it can't just be this kind of cooperative nature. And I'm yet to find um, that 
that's not what the story is. I think there's so much work to go around. Um, and you also have to understand that by the time that we're in the 20th century, it's uh, the Jim Crow market, you know, as August uh, Meyer talks about. It's, it's very segregated. Um, mm -hmm. So we definitely don't want to fight each other while we're fighting white folks. Um, mm -hmm. But these benevolent societies really do come out of a need to pay the undertaker uh, for, you know, what Carla Holloway talks about, the, our last big performance. It's all about the open cast. It's all about the flowers. It's all about making sure that that body, you know, looks like itself in, in, in life. So I think it, it definitely is a work mm -hmm. it. Um, and I think another big thing when you're talking about African-American undertaking or African-American mm -hmm. undertakers themselves, these folks lived within the community. So it wasn't this idea of trying to, um, you know, just get every dime I can. You know, I've seen countless stories, definitely during the Great Depression, but even mm -hmm. afterwards, if a person can't pay, I'm mm -hmm. still going to do the service um, that that's necessary. Mm -hmm. So there is this kind of working together, but mm -hmm. the, the benevolent societies really were about pinching their pennies, you know, their, their coins together to pay mm -hmm. um, whoever, right, the, you know, the widow's fund really is what they called it, to be able mm -hmm. to pay to make sure this person gets that, that proper funeral. Yeah, interesting, there's kind of resonances with working class funerals in the UK, that whole notion that the community is supporting itself. And and I, what I really liked about some of the discussion in your, your book is talking about the that search for visibility that comes with the funeral. The funeral is about being as visible and almost as inconvenient as possible for other people because there is that sort of emphasis on here was a life worth celebrating, irrespective of all of the other contexts that are happening that happens. The community is respecting that life and celebrating that life. And and, and you're mentioning a couple of things there about the open casket and about the flowers and the presentation. Do you think this comes? Where where is this seated? Is it seated within resistance to slavery and the invisibility that comes with slavery, or is it is it something that comes from African American tradition? Is it something that you know, where does it come from? I think in our volume, um, and, and Ashley would, I think, agree to this. That's really what we were trying to get at. Mm -hmm. um, there's a real activist element here. Um, yes. when you, again, when you're defining the South with a racial border, right, and you're saying that uh, white enslavers literally have the right to life and death, right, mm -hmm. they're controlling that, then death becomes a vehicle um, really to push back against that. Um, and that memorial aspect to be remembered is just takes the life of its own and becomes very important. Um, mm -hmm. But I think scholars of the African diaspora, I think uh, um, they would look at Africanism. You know, they would look at West African death practices. If we're talking about the Ga people or a the Akon folks of modern day Ghana, um, mm -hmm. it say that these practices did survive, right? Mm -hmm. The transatlantic slave trade. You look at the Gullah people. For example, in the South, from North, South Carolina, Georgia, really mm -hmm. on down through Florida, you would say that those practices, um, you know, did survive. But I think when you look at um, the ways in which Black folks are dying, and this is something that's running through our, through our volume, um, I'm thinking about Adrian uh, Chizinski, her article, where she's talking specifically about or her chapter 
she's talking specifically about the civil rights movement and those mm-hmm. martyrs and what happened to those folks, you know, that we are teaching about, we're learning about the four little girls that were, um, you know, just in the, the 16th Street bombing or Emmett Teal. I mean, they just did another motion picture about him. I think mm-hmm. folks would be surprised to know his casket um, or the um, memorial that they have up for him in Bunny, Mississippi, that as of 2018, there were some, some white college students that shot up his memorial. What is going on there? What are we, you know, wh- what? how are we learning? What What's going on with that? And so when you see the ways that we die, see how... Um, you know, Black folks are marginalized in the national narrative or in the regional narrative, then again, death becomes a way to uh, make it, make it very visible. Our life becomes visible. Yeah. 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 And I would just add on to what Cammie said, that that was actually the question you just asked is one of the other kind of touchstones of our book and how we started thinking about why we needed this book, because a lot of the scholarship that has been done on African-American cemeteries has focused on that question of to what extent did African culture and burial practices survive in America? How much of that do you see in the practices in America? And while I think that's an absolutely valid question, I think, uh, our volume is trying to take it a step forward from that to say, okay, yes, these practices did survive, but what the, what did that actually mean for African-American people? Like, how did they then use those practices to affirm mm-hmm. their humanity, create communities, push back against the inhumanity of slavery? Um, and so in what ways were they politicizing those those customs that they had brought and transformed. Um, and so that's what our volume is is taking up. Yeah, it's a hugely valid point is thinking about, as you say, about how these identities are deployed and in what circumstances and thinking about those those things. I think the the it's really interesting in thinking about this kind of resistance to marginalization and the chapters that, that sit around sort of like the burial of, of civil war um, activists and the, the martyrs that you just talked about. Um, they're really interesting in unpicking the the problems that sit around that kind of memorialization, and and in particular, you know, family conflict around the identity of this person as the person they loved versus a symbol of something better or something different. Um, it, it's interesting to see that. I mean, it, was this? It, do you find this a, a kind of common story that, that sits beyond that? Is how we think about people as symbols versus people as loved members of a family if you know what i mean you know your your question um makes me think about what we call the mothers of the movement like seriously modern day so trayvon martin's mother mike brown's mother um Mm -hmm. you know these black men um and women um i think sandra bland's sister um have gone on to um you know, their their loved ones are now involved in, in politics. Like they literally have run for city council or some, you know, where in their in their state and they have become um to continue on this this movement. Um and you just make me think about that. Um that that labor, that that's a lot of, of labor 
even if it's a good thing. Um, and it may be in, uh, I think it's in Adrian Chudensky's, her, her chapter as well, where there's scholars that are writing about, um, they're, they're writing about Black motherhood grief and they're using um, Emmett Till, even a, a portion in my, Emmett Till's mother, even a portion in my chapter um, where I talk about this 20-year-old Vietnam that dies for his country and cannot be buried in a cemetery. And so there's these pictures, these iconography of the these mothers, these Black women that are just crying and just wailing. Um, and that's political mm-hmm. because people do not believe Black women are in pain. And that goes into another discussion about Black, uh, about our um, our medical industry. Right. And, and why disproportionately black women are dying. But I think, you know, what you're saying, it just makes me think about just full circle and how many kind of um, legs this issue really has when you're talking about the symbol versus the person and the labor that that comes with that and, and what that means. Um, it is activism. Um, but when this this story keeps getting told, then what are we talking about? Are we talking about empathy? Are we talking about humanity? You know, is this a human rights issue, a social justice issue? And then again, what role does the cemetery play in in telling that story and teaching folks? Which again, mm-hmm. which is why we have that um, that lesson at the end of every chapter. Mm-hmm. You've read about what's going on with the these martyrs, mm-hmm. and then how can you now apply that? Because we don't want to keep telling. You know, there's this kind of same story. Yeah, I think you. It's really. I know. I keep going back to the UK and thinking about work that's been done on working class grief and the notion that if you're working class, that you have you have a lot of children, you don't really care if one dies. You know, your you, your your sentiments aren't as refined as the middle class grief. So it, you know that grief doesn't matter. And I think there's that that whole notion that certain types of grief don't matter. That the that the people experiencing those aren't really experiencing in the way that we would like. So they're quite easy to dismiss. It's the, it's the issues about grievability and non-grievability, isn't it? Certain deaths are grievable and certain deaths aren't. Um, but I think taking this back to the cemetery and thinking about that landscape and that, you know, the, the, the tropes of cemetery, I know being in cemetery history for a long time, we want these big grand statement cemeteries to express our wish to see death in the past like that. But actually the notion that, that cemeteries cannot, don't, aren't always like that. You know that the, the, you know we're talking about modesty. We're talking about marginality. We're talking about a different kind of story, death. Looking at death in the past, that I think is slightly more challenging in some ways. And thinking about the people who were excluded from these bigger statements. Yeah, I think the um, the first chapter in our volume, uh, which is by Scarlett Jernigan, who's looking at Rose Hill Cemetery in Macon, Georgia. I think she gets to that point. She's looking at how her kind of overarching um, point of the chapter is to look at how you see racial and class divisions that you saw in the city itself also perpetuated in the landscape of Rose Hill. So the most prominent burials are for the wealthy um, who were also living in the most like prominent places in the city. And so she kind of maps those similarities between city and cemetery. But 
what's really interesting about her chapter is she's looking at how enslavers were trying to do this impression management of their character. Um, so looking at some of the most prominent gravestones and what these enslavers chose to have put on um, their gravestone as like their last message to the world to say, this is who I was. And they say things like benevolent master. They wanted that. That was a source of pride for them. Um, and so I think what our book does is it interrogates the simplicity of kind of last messages that people are trying to send about themselves and tries to interrogate the complexity underneath that and kind of the politics that went into why did they choose that as their final message to the world. This is what I want to show myself as. Uh, and so I think that gets at that tension between a person's identity uh, and then who they actually were as an individual. Um, and I think you see that also in Carol Van West's chapter, where he's looking at um, the victims of the Tuskegee syphilis study. And there's been a lot of work done by community members there to reclaim the cemetery, to talk about what happened to the victims who were part of that study and just how how apparently they were treated by um, the federal government. But at the same time, there's this tension where they don't want that study to be the only identity for these victims, right? That they were victims of this syphilis study. They want them to be treated as whole humans who have dignity, that that wasn't the only thing that defines them. And so through the, the way that they're memorializing the cemetery and the signage that they're putting up, they're trying to tell this more comprehensive story of their lives that doesn't just put them in this box of being defined by that one thing. Mm. Which is a hugely problematic. It's very difficult to, to walk that line, isn't it? Yeah. I think I think one of the the other themes that's that's really strong for me I think in looking at this this collection is is the efforts that are currently being made to protect enhance interpret these landscapes and there seems to be a really welcome sort of um, I'm not saying resurgence but it because it presumes it was but a really a huge amount of energy now that's being put into understanding these landscapes and interpreting them to people um, and you've got. Each of the chapters has got really useful little sort of, um, you know, pointers about how to teach this issue to a whole range of different sort of students from, you know, undergraduate, postgraduate, right down to sort of school level, which is great because it integrates everybody sort of into the story. What do you think are the, the challenges there that, that sit in interpretation and preservation? You know, I when when you were talking, I thought that's exactly why we ended our chat, our, our volume the way that we did. We ended um, Adam Rosenblatt and um, Aaron and Brian uh, Holloway. You know, they're talking about, or Holloway Palmer, they're talking about what now? Like, mm -hmm. this is still going on right now. Um, it becomes a reparations issue mm -hmm. um, because you're asking yourself who owns the land. You know, they're talking about in Virginia, in Richmond. Um, now you're looking at, folks trying to reclaim this, exactly what, you know, other chapters are, are doing, what Ashley was just speaking about, and they're saying, my ancestors lived here, here's paperwork proof, right? But now developers um, are saying, well, we own the land or we have the deeds to the land and they want to develop on that. So I think 
that becomes a, a real issue. Um, and then the other thing is that the South does not reckon with itself. Mm. The South does not reckon with itself. Uh, with this type of crime against humanity, you have the transatlantic slave trade, you have plantation slavery, you have the Holocaust, you have genocide, you have the Trail of Tears. We still don't know who the bad guys are. So when we are in the South trying to tell a story of marginalization or reclamation, you still get issues around neglect. Oh, well, these Black folks left the cemetery in in this way. Um, they neglected it. They did not do this. They did not do that. That becomes a competing narrative in what's going on. And all you have to do is pull back one layer and you'll mm -hmm. see how during this Jim, Jim Crow period, um, you know, Black folks did not have any rights or even thinking about it uh, really now how tough um, it is. I'm a part of a African-American preservation, like a cemetery coalition. Um, and folks are just talking about how tough it is to restore and preserve. I myself, um, on my mother's side in Rise in Arkansas, we are trying, we, you know, we are trying uh, to preserve land that we know is ours. And yet it's still being encroached upon. Mm -hmm. What do you do, right? It, it's a, And this is what I keep saying. It's a similar story. You know, no longer is it Jim Crow. Now you have these developers who are predominantly white or following a very white supremacist, whiteness type narrative, right? Um, that are saying we own the land. And that's why I started off as saying that it's a reparations issue. But we can, we have not reckoned with ourselves to say that as a country we have done black identified folks wrong, mm -hmm. and this is what they are deserving of. They deserve to be preserved, restored. They deserve to be a part fully of this narrative. And I and so looking at looking at it through this lens of death, where we believe that everybody dies and there's this equality in death, I think. Mm -hmm may allow people to step back and, and be critical of it. Yeah, you, I think it's really interesting, isn't it? Because these sites are so vulnerable because they're essential constituency. Oh, this is something that really struck me in reading the book and thinking about the communities that had to move as a consequence of development and as a consequence of the segregation laws had to abandon their dead forcibly um, and, and are no longer in a position where they're able to protect, often because... A lot of this protection sits around who votes for what. You know, if you don't live in that area, you can't vote against development because you're not there anymore. And it, and it means it's very hard to protect. But it sounds like, you know, from the way in which you, the book talks about it, that increasingly as state level protections are being afforded different types, you know, African-American burial spaces in recognition of that historical importance. Do you see that as something that a trend that's likely to, to expand further? I, I mean, we, Ashley, I don't know what thoughts you have on it. Please, go ahead. Yeah. I think we hope so. I think one of the the contributions that we hope this volume makes is to show why African-American cemeteries are so important. And to the question that you asked about the difficulties of doing this kind of work and researching Black cemeteries, um, there is a lack of documentation on a lot of these cemeteries and who's buried there um, just because of the nature of, you know, the markers that were used or if they even kept records of who was buried and what happened to those. But 
with all that being said, I think our volume shows that cemeteries are one of the most important sources that we have when it comes to studying African-American history. They are in and of themselves an archive that tells us a lot about Black history and community. And so with these places being in peril, with them being paved over to put Tropicana Field or, you know, to make way for a strip mall, that's mm -hmm. just another source of history that is being lost. Um, and I think that um, Adam Rosenblatt and Aaron Holloway Palmer and Brian Palmer's chapter shows this so well in juxtaposing Oakwood Cemetery and the Confederate section in Oakwood Cemetery that is pristine, finely manicured. Uh, all of the graves are, are in great condition. And then just right across the street, you have East End and Evergreen Cemetery that are in complete disrepair, that you can't even see a lot of the graves, that they are grown over with vines. This is where people were putting their trash. Um, it became a dumping ground. And so in that that juxtaposition, you see the history that mainstream America has privileged for so long. Um, and it's only been, you know, in the last decade or 20 years or so that I think mainstream America has started to pay more attention to Black cemeteries because of activists who are there and saying that these sites are important and they deserve mm -hmm. preservation as a form of reparations, as a form of social justice and activism, that this history needs to be privileged in the same way that Confederate history has been privileged for so long. Let, let me jump in and say this too, um, Ashley. There's a connecting the dots that we're trying to do here. Um, I think if anybody knows anything about it, there's this idea that you know every Black person was a slave. So we've got slave cemeteries. And then maybe we've got church cemeteries and then everybody is buried wherever they want to. Um, there, there's a real connection that we're trying to show folks is that with Jim Crow that lasted almost 80 years, that segregated Black folks and denied ownership, denied access to library schools, but also the burying ground, right? Um, there was also a building up of America. There was a, a whole um, progressive history, if you will, definitely by the 50s. We're building highways. We're building suburbia, right? Um, and that bulldozed right through Black town, right? And so when you're hearing this narrative now, oh, my goodness, how did this cemetery get paved over become, to become a strip mall? How did this cemetery get paved over to become a a field or a dog park. How how did these things happen? We're trying to connect the dots for people um, and say, folks, we're fighting. They they took it all the way to the top. They took it to the court system, but they weren't protected. And this is what this is what happens. You have a freeway, not once but twice, going through this black community that also had a cemetery, that also had a school with self-sustaining. And so when we talk about like People are just now grappling with what I think have just been mumblings of Black Wall Street. It was Greenwood, Oklahoma, uh, you know, right outside of Tulsa, right? You had, and it wasn't just one. There were thriving Black communities. Where you had a thriving Black community, you had a cemetery. When that was lost, when the, the town was um, literally bombed, 
then what happened to the the ancestors that they revered? So we really are trying to connect the dots with both, hopefully our readers, and getting them to really think about the South and what did that mean, what legacy is being carried on um, in, in the South to the detriment, social exclusion, social annihilation, um, you know, to some folks. Because even if you can, even those historical plantations, I mean, you still have places in the 20th century where these plantations were turned into bed and breakfast, uh, breakfast establishments, even on the Eastern Shore out here in Maryland. So we're still trying to grapple with some of that and just really help folks connect the dots with that. Mm. I would also just add, I want to plug, I think I've plugged every chapter of the book, but uh, Antoinette Jackson and Kaniqua Robinson's chapter looks at that very issue that Cammie's talking about where they are studying cemeteries that no longer exist um, in St. Petersburg, Florida. They're looking at the Oaklawn Cemetery Complex, and which was paved over for Tropicana Field. And they are asking, in the absence of these cemeteries, what can we learn about the Black community through looking at uh, a network of other death ways that were part of this matrix of providing people with a fitting burial. So they look at, in particular, again, the really vital role that women were playing in providing these burials through both hospitals and nursing, um, through their kind of community organizing to um, put on funerals and services. And so they're looking at if you're left, if you don't have the cemetery, which again is this really vital source of information on uncovering the history of Black communities, what are we left with? How can we go about reconstructing these communities in the absence of, of those cemeteries? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'm going to draw our conversation to a close. Um, I think... Um, for me, it's been a remarkably powerful book. I've very much enjoyed engaging with it. I think it's massively important work. And, and I think it, it creates a very, very strong foundation for, an, for a new understanding of what these spaces mean, the massive importance of these spaces. So I'm hoping that it'll be the subject of a lot, lot more work, a lot more exploration, a lot more conservation and interpretation. And, um, and so I think I'm going to leave it there. So thank you very much to you both. Um, and... Um, I hope to, to meet you again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you.